Morning, church. Great to be back with you uh, today. And uh, as we begin, I want to give you a quick overview of what the rest of the year is going to look like here at Harmony. Uh, We're down to uh, just four Sundays left in the year, believe it or not. And uh, over the first three, we're going to wrap up our series in the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, And then on the fourth weekend, and I say weekend because uh, this year Christmas Eve is on a Saturday, and so we're going to combine our Sunday morning services and our Christmas Eve services. We're going to have them all on uh, Saturday, December 24th. And so you're going to want to be here for these services. Uh, We're going to have some uh, special music. We'll have some special service elements, and we'll have a special message that's going to be focused on how Jesus came to bring us redemption. Uh, so that we could, every single one of us, have an incredible redemption story. So we'll have two services at each of our campuses, one o'clock and three o'clock. And I really want to encourage you to, to bring your family with you, invite neighbors, coworkers, friends. It'll be a great time for people to be able to hear the gospel. It's one of the two times of the year that people are most likely to respond uh, positively to an invitation, come to a church service and take this opportunity uh, and let's gather together on December 24th, because we're going to celebrate the incarnation big time, right? All right, so I look forward to that. And uh, now if you will take your Bibles and turn with me to Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7, if you don't have a Bible, uh, there should be one in the chair in front of you. So grab that, uh, turn to page 635, and you'll find Matthew 7 there. Uh, And while you're getting there, I want to talk to you about poetry. Yes, poetry. This might be surprising to you, but I'm not a big poetry guy. Now, every once in a while, I write a little verse for Eva, a little love song here and there. Actually, I've never done that. Never will, because she just laugh at me. But I do have two or three poems that I like, and my favorite by far is Robert Frost's The Road Not Taken. Uh, this is a very famous poem. You're probably familiar with it. So I just want to read uh, for you the last verse, which goes like this. Uh, I shall be telling this with a sigh somewhere ages and ages hence. Two roads diverged in a wood. And I, I took the one less traveled by. And that has made all the difference. This is my favorite poem because it highlights, number one, the importance of the decisions that we make. And number two, that the road less traveled is the best one to take. Actually, a little poetry there for you this morning, all right? The importance of the decisions that we make and the fact that the road less traveled is the best one to take. Over the next three weeks, we're going to look very carefully at how Jesus says something very similar to Robert Frost as he wraps up the Sermon on the Mount. You see, in the final words of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus gives his application. Everything that we've been looking at the last four months is all headed here to these last three messages where Jesus is going to stress the importance of the decisions that we make and emphasize that the road less traveled is by far the best one to take. Jesus is going to do so by pointing out that we have three choices in life. He says that we must choose between two gates Two kinds of teachers and two kinds of foundations. And Jesus makes it clear that our choices in these matters really do make all the difference in the world. So let's look at our text for today, uh, which is verses 13 and 14, and then 21 through 23 of chapter 7. Jesus says this, and I want you to read it carefully. We're we're really going to look closely at these verses today. Jesus says this, enter by the narrow gate. 
For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the way is, or the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. Verse 21, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, do we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. If I'm being honest, I find these two statements to be the most frightening words that Jesus ever spoke. Jesus says that there are many people who think they are Christians, but in reality are not. Jesus says there are many people who think that they are on the way to heaven, but in truth they are on the way to hell. Jesus says that on that day, the judgment day, there are going to be a lot of people who are going to stand before him believing that they're going to hear, well done, good and faithful steward, enter into the joy of our master. But in actuality, they're going to hear, get out of my face, I want nothing to do with you. Now, it might be a little shocking to think that Jesus would say something like that, but that actually is a literal rendering of what Jesus says in verse 23. Here's the thing, though. What Jesus says here flies in the face of what most people believe. A recent survey uh, shows that uh, almost two-thirds of Americans believe that they are going to heaven, and only 2% of us think that we're going to hell. That's not exactly what Jesus says here in our text today, does he? Now, it is true that in another survey, uh, it seems that most Americans seem to believe that hell is other people. But still, there's a lot of incongruity between what Jesus says is true and what most people believe is true. And I want you to understand this. I'm not just talking about people outside of the church. I'm also talking about people inside of the church. Today, there are many people inside of the church who subscribe to some form of universalism. The idea that everybody eventually makes it to heaven. What's more, the leader of the largest religion in the world, Pope Francis, shortly after he took office in 2013, stated that even atheists are going to be redeemed, that God's going to save even people who don't believe in him. Now, what does this mean for you and me? And we really need to consider this today. Well, what it means for us is two things. One, it means we need to recognize that the prevailing winds of our day can give us a false sense of security. They can make us think that we're in when we very well may not be. And then number two, it means that we need to heed the Apostle Paul's words to the church at Corinth in 2 Corinthians 13 when he says this, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves, or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test. We're supposed to examine ourselves to determine if we're truly saved, if we are truly Christians. So this morning, we're going to take the am I a Christian test that Jesus administers in the Sermon on the Mount. Remember, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is giving us a portrait of discipleship. And we're going to see today that as he he closes his sermon, he tells us how to discern if we are truly a disciple, if we truly are a Christian. And here's, here's my hope as we all take this test together today. My hope is that if you 
are a Christian, today you are going to gain a rock-solid assurance that that is the case. My hope and prayer for you today is that when you leave the doors of the facility that you are in, you are going to know without a shadow of a doubt that when you die, when you take your last breath here on earth, you're going to take your first breath in heaven. That's my hope for you, for those of you who are Christians. On the other hand, if you're not a Christian, my hope for you today is that you will be awakened to that reality, and then in response, you will be saved today. That You will recognize that you're not on the way to heaven, but then you will also realize that you can be on the way of heaven through placing your faith in Jesus Christ, and that you will be able to leave today with a rock-solid assurance that you are on the way to heaven. So what's the goal today? The goal today is for every single person to know that they have a home in heaven, that their name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life, that Jesus is their Savior. So, so this is a win-win. So, so listen, I, I get it, that this is um, unsettling, right? What, what we've read, what we're going to talk about. It's uncomfortable to take the am I a Christian test, but it's actually a win-win. Here's why. If you are a Christian, there is nothing greater, there's nothing that will give you more joy than to know for sure that you are saved. What could be better than that, right? And on the other hand, if you're not a Christian, you need to know that you're not a Christian so you can become a Christian. And what would be better for you today than when you leave to actually know that not only has your current life been changed, but your eternal life has been changed, and that you can know that when you die, which you are going, by the way, you know that you're going to die, right? Unless Jesus does come back, which would be wonderful, that would be, we would prefer that for sure. But if Jesus doesn't come back, we're all going to die one day, and we're all going to stand before him in judgment. And so what we need more than anything else is we need to know for sure that when we stand before Jesus in judgment, he's not going to say, get away from me. He's going to say, welcome home. And that's the goal for today for all of us. So with that said, all right, um, let's look at what Jesus has to say here. And what we find is that Jesus gives us both reliable and unreliable evidence of salvation. So things that we can look to Okay, that, that is really good evidence that we are a Christian and then things that we shouldn't look to as evidence that we are a Christian. So let's begin with unreliable evidence of salvation. And the first is a profession of faith. The first unreliable evidence of salvation is a profession of faith. The people that Jesus is talking about in verses 21 through 23 clearly profess to be Christians. However, they seem to base uh, this primarily on the fact of what they've said and what they've done. Today, this might include uh, praying the sinner's prayer, asking Jesus into your heart, walking an aisle, getting baptized. But note that Jesus makes it clear that calling yourself a Christian and doing religious activities doesn't prove that you're saved. Now, there are many places in this sermon where you're going to need to listen carefully to me, and this is one of them. I am not saying that those things that I just listed off aren't good things and are not normally part of someone's salvation experience. They were part, every single one of them was part of my salvation experience. At six years of age, okay, I asked Jesus into my heart. I prayed the sinner's prayer. I walked an aisle. 
I got into a baptistry. And all of those things are good. I am thankful for every one of them, but none of them proves that I am saved. And none of them proves that I am saved because Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter two that we're not saved by works, by anything that we do, but rather by grace through faith in Jesus alone. So do you all with me? I'm not, I'm not repudiating any of those things. They were true for me. I am very thankful that they are all part of my salvation experience, that God used all of those things. But those were simply things that I used to express outwardly what God had done inwardly by his grace through faith in Jesus. And so I just encourage you here, when you're like, am I saved? Don't look at, well, I prayed a prayer. I got into it to a baptistry. Okay, I, I walked an aisle but rather think about whether or not you have faith in Jesus. Now, I'm getting ahead of myself, all right? But Jesus makes it very, very clear that calling ourselves a Christian, doing certain religious activities are not reliable evidence of salvation. The second unreliable evidence of salvation is orthodoxy. Orthodoxy. As indicated by the repeated Lord, Lord, the people Jesus is talking about in verses 21 to 23 affirm the truth about him. They believe that he is the God-man who died for their sins and rose again. They zealously hold to the core truths of the gospel, and they even teach these truths to others. And yet Jesus says, shockingly, they aren't Christians. Let me be clear that orthodoxy is essential. Being a Christian means believing what the Bible says about Jesus and the gospel, among other things. And next Sunday, we'll see why this is the case when we talk about false teachers. However, we have to be careful that we don't get the idea that having the right theology proves that we are saved. I've asked you this numerous times before, but who is the greatest theologian on the planet? Who knows more theology than all of us? The devil the devil is the greatest theologian on the planet. Here's what James says. James chapter two and verse 19. You believe that God is one. In other words, you believe in the Trinity, like the core, core doctrine. Good for you. Good for you. Even the demons believe and they shudder. So walk with me through this. The devil believes. He knows for a fact that Jesus is the son of God. That, that baby who was born to the Virgin Mary was, was actually God come in the flesh. He, he knows that. And the devil was there. I actually believe he was in person when Jesus was nailed to the cross. He's the one that orchestrated the whole thing, by the way. And I believe that the devil is really, really clear that Jesus rose from the dead. Now, I don't believe that the devil was anywhere near, okay, the tomb. He was hiding, probably mourning, but he knows that Jesus came out of the grave. And he also knows what it means. And he knows that what it means is that now, through faith in Jesus, through his life, death, and resurrection, that all those who believe in him are free from the devil's grip and are on their way to heaven. He knows all of these things. He believes all of these things. And yet, is the devil saved? Is the devil going to go to heaven? No. Why? Well, it's because saving faith is more than mentally assenting to certain core doctrinal truths. Saving faith, and I love this, Jonathan Edwards, 17th century American pastor, one of the most famous American pastors in history, said that saving faith is light in the head and it's heat in the heart. 
Let me say that again. True saving faith, light in the head and it's heat in the heart. It's not just mentally agreeing with truths, but it's believing those truths in such a way that it travels the 18 inches from your brain to your heart and transforms your life. Do you not only subscribe to the truths of the gospel, but have those truths actually warmed your heart so that you now have a passion, you now have a desire, you're on fire in your heart to serve, to love, and to walk with Jesus. As we talked about this over and over again, one thing that's crystal clear in the Sermon on the Mount is that Jesus is most concerned about the what. Jesus is most concerned about your heart. Yes, he wants you to believe the truths about him. He, He wants you to believe all the truths in the Sermon on the Mount too. But what he's most concerned about is for that truth to work into your heart so that your life is transformed. Let me tell you one of my primary concerns as your pastor. One of my primary concerns is that you're gonna come week after week and you're gonna get fed with Bible doctrine and you're gonna get fat on Bible doctrine, but it's never actually going to make any difference in your life. So, so can I tell you this? It, it, it does not matter how much Bible knowledge you have if that Bible knowledge doesn't actually transform and change the way that you are living. And so if you come and you think those messages are great, and I love going to Harmony Bible Church, but, but your life is not changed, you're not becoming more like Jesus, then something is desperately wrong. Being a Christian isn't simply about believing the right truths. It's ultimately about being transformed by those truths. Here's the third unreliable piece of evidence, and that's ministry success. Ministry success. In verse 22, Jesus says that doing things for him even in spectacularly successful ways, doesn't prove that we're saved. Now, Christians will serve Jesus and give to Jesus and make disciples for Jesus, tell others about Jesus, but it's completely possible to do all of these things and even to be wildly successful at them and to still not be a Christian. I know this is counterintuitive, Uh, But God, at times, does use unbelievers to accomplish his purposes. For for evidence of this, all we have to do is look at Jesus' original ministry team. On Jesus' original ministry team was a man by the name of Judas, who, yes, at the end of his life, did show that he wasn't a true believer, but we have to recognize that he served side-by-side with Jesus in ministry for years in a ministry that was incredibly successful and fruitful. The point is this, serving and giving and discipling are all good things. They're even necessary things for a Christian. However, Jesus says that none of these things are reliable evidence of salvation. He says it's possible to give yourself to all of these things and to even be very fruitful in them and to not be a Christian. Now, I don't know if this hits anybody here today, but let me tell you, it hits me. And it's me because I find that at times what I look to for assurance of my salvation, okay, is the fact that I'm a pastor, that I am serving uh, Jesus, that at least at this time the Lord is really blessing the ministry that I get to be a part of. But, But here's the reality, friends. None of those things prove that I am a Christian. And none of those things prove that I am a Christian because being a Christian, and again, I'm getting ahead of myself, It's not about what we do, it's about whether or not we have faith in what Jesus has done. Which leads now 
to the reliable evidence? What can we look to to give us rock-solid evidence that we are believers? Jesus gives us two things in our text today, two things that go hand in hand. And the first is faith in Jesus alone. Look at verses 13 and 14 again. Here's the key part of the message, all right? We, We need to understand these verses. Jesus says this, enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life and those who find it are few. So this is really simple. Jesus says there are two gates. There's a narrow gate and there's a wide gate. And the narrow gate leads to life, i.e. to heaven, and the wide gate leads to destruction, i.e. to hell. That's really simple. Everybody's got that, right? There's only two ways. Regardless of what the world says, there's only two ways. Jesus says, okay? There's a a narrow way and there is a wide way. And the narrow way leads to life. The wide way leads to destruction. So that's really, really simple. All right? But here's the thing. Jesus is imploring us to enter by the narrow gate. He says that wide way, it looks like the way to go, right? It's an easy way to go. Lots of people are going that way. I don't want you to go that way. I want you to go the road less traveled. I want you to enter through the narrow gate. But that leaves us with this question. What is the narrow gate? Where is the narrow gate? How do we find the narrow gate? Well, here's the thing. It's not about a what or a where. It's about a who. The narrow gate isn't a what, it's not a where, it's a who. You know who that who is? The who is Jesus himself. Jesus is the gate through which we must enter if we are going to be saved, if we are going to have eternal life, if we are going to make it to heaven. This is, friends, uh, the major theme, the major theme of the entire New Testament, and it comes back to it over and over again, and I could literally spend hours walking you through passages that teach this truth. I'm just going to give you one, maybe two. We'll start with one, all right? Here's what Jesus himself says in John chapter 10. He says, I am the door. That's another word for gate. So I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone, get this, does what? Enters by me, He will be what? He will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and to kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. So Jesus is the gate that leads to life. He's the gate we must enter through to get to heaven. And here's the critical question. Why does Jesus call himself the narrow gate? Well, that's because he's the only way of salvation. Let me be clear about this. Jesus isn't a way to salvation. He's the only way to salvation. Here's what he says in John chapter 14. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Get this next part. No one comes to the Father, i.e. no one makes it to heaven. No one is saved but through or except through me. Jesus is the only way. There are no other ways to be saved but through faith in him. So listen closely to me here. If you want to know if you're saved, ask yourself this. Am I trusting in Jesus alone for salvation? 
Am I trusting in Jesus alone for salvation? If your answer to that question is yes, then you can have a great assurance that you are saved. Now, here's what I want to do. I want to help you to discern if you're trusting in Jesus alone for salvation. I've learned that we have a real tendency to mentally affirm this. And, and many of you probably right now are mentally affirm, yes, I'm, my faith is in Jesus alone. I believe in Jesus. I believe in Jesus. But what I've experienced as a pastor, a lot of people who, who say that, but, but then in reality, they're trusting in something else or they're trusting in Jesus plus something else. So I've learned this through membership interviews and baptism interviews and premarital counseling interviews and just counseling sessions that, that people trust in a lot of other things. And so here's the answers that I get when, when I ask them, how do you know that you, you're saved? They'll say, well, um, I grew up in a Christian home, or I've never known a time where I'm not a Christian, or I've lived a pretty good life, or I've always gone to church to serve the Lord, or I'm not sure. And can I just suggest to you that none of those answers are good answers? They're none of them are good answers. And so here's what I want you to, to do. I want you to think that if you were to stand before Jesus on Judgment Day, and can I just point out to you again, you are going to stand before Jesus on Judgment Day. Every single one of us is going to stand before him. So when you stand before Jesus, what are you going to be trusting in that he is going to allow you into heaven? What is your, what is your hope in? What is your trust in? Is it in the fact that you, you've lived a good life? Is it the fact that you grew up in a Christian family? Is it the fact that you've gone to Harmony Bible Church your entire life? Is it the fact that you just think that everybody's going to make it in? Or is your trust in the fact that Jesus Christ took on human flesh and came to this earth and lived the perfect life that you don't live, died the death that you deserve, rose again from the grave, and said that whoever believes in me will have eternal life? What is your hope in? I think the best way to put it is the way that the hymn Rock of Ages does. When it goes like this, it says, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. In other words, faith in Jesus alone means that we're not clinging to anything, our goodness, our family upbringing, the fact that everybody is eventually going to get in. The fact that we're better than these other people. The fact that we have this right amount of knowledge. The fact that we've even served Jesus in incredible ways. No, what we cling to is we cling to the cross. So maybe even think about it this way. And I'm going to pains here because we, we really need to get this, not only for ourselves, we need to get this for our kids, we need to get this for our neighbors, we need to get this for our coworkers. We need to understand what it means to truly be saved. So, so imagine that Jesus were to ask you this question. Why should I allow you into heaven? How would you respond to that question? Here's what I want to suggest that is a way that you should respond to that question. It should go something like this. It should go, on my own, you shouldn't let me in. I don't deserve to be saved. I deserve eternal punishment to be separated you forever. But, Jesus, your word says that whoever believes with their, or confesses with their mouth that you are Lord and believes in the heart that God raised you from the dead, they will be saved. And I believe those things. I have placed my faith and my trust in those things. I'm not trusting in anything that I have done. I am simply trusting in what Jesus did. I am believing you at your word. It's not about me. It's not about what I've done, not what I can do. It's all about what Jesus has done. And in short... You know what the best answer is? If Jesus says, why should I allow you into heaven? You know what you should say to him? Jesus. 
Jesus. Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to Jesus' cross I cling. So here's my question for you today. Is that true for you? Are you today clinging simply to the cross? Is your only hope in life and death what Jesus has done in your place? If it is, then you can know today that you are saved and you will always be saved. You can know that nothing is gonna separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. You can know that when you take your dying breath, you're gonna wake up seeing Jesus face to face. You can know that today. Now, if your hope is, is not in Jesus, if that's not true for you, then here's what I wanna invite you today to do today. I just wanna invite you to place your faith in him. I just wanna invite you to, to, to let go of all of everything else that you are doing or putting your hope in that you're gonna make it to heaven and simply trust in him. And if you will do that today, you can know the same as somebody who's been saved for 60 years that you have the same security that they do that when you die, you're gonna to go to heaven too. And so I just wanna invite you to do that right now, right where you're at, sitting in your seat, watching online, one of our other campuses, just to place your faith in Jesus right now and to cling to him and to him alone. So with that said, that's the first reliable piece of evidence. Here's the second, and again, they go hand in hand. The second piece of reliable evidence is to recognize that having faith in Jesus alone has implications in how we live our lives. Jesus makes it clear in our text that if we're trusting in him alone, then that's going to lead to the second reliable piece of evidence, and that's obedience. So take a look at verse 21. Again, Jesus says this, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Jesus very plainly states that it's not what we say, but rather what we do that shows whether or not we're truly saved. Here's how Jesus puts it in Luke chapter 6. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I tell you? In other words, if we don't obey him, then Jesus isn't our Lord. And if Jesus isn't our Lord, then he isn't our Savior. And if Jesus isn't our Savior, then that means we aren't saved. Y'all following me here? Jesus says this, why do you call me Lord, but you don't do what I say? Because if I'm your Lord, you're going to do what I say. And so if Jesus is our Lord, we're trusting in him for salvation, that means we are going to obey him. And if we don't obey him, that shows that we aren't trusting in him as our Lord. If he isn't our Lord, he isn't our Savior. You see, the most objective evidence of whether or not we're truly saved is found in whether or not we're obedient to Jesus. I'm going to pains here because today there's a prevailing and I would say insidious belief that it's possible to be a Christian without actually following Christ. That we can be on the road to heaven without following the hard road of obedience that leads there. And I want you to look at verse 14 again. Notice what Jesus says there. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. So everybody look at me. Because we really need to get this in the church today. If we enter through the narrow gate of Jesus, that puts us on the hard road that leads to life. You can't enter by the narrow way and then get on the easy path. <laughs> when you get in through the narrow gate, you are automatically on the hard road. And the hard road is obedience to Jesus. It's not easy to obey him. 
but it's not possible to be on the way to life and it be an easy way of life. And, and the point here is, is, is we've just gotten to a place because of our culture and, and, and how influential Christianity has been that we think that we can simply call ourselves Christians, that we can simply make a profession of faith, and that that doesn't need to, 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 to translate into any type of transformation of our lives. And Jesus is telling us it's not possible. Here's another passage I think is really important. John chapter 6, Jesus says this, or John chapter 3, he says this, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. This verse reveals how the two reliable pieces of evidence work together. Faith in Jesus leads to obedience to Jesus. Where there's faith, there will be obedience And where there's no obedience, there's no true faith. I realize that we we may not like this, but we can't get around what Jesus is saying here. When we truly believe in Jesus, we will obey Jesus. And so I urge you to ask yourself, am I being obedient? Am I being obedient? If the answer is yes, then you have great evidence that you're saved and that you have entered through the narrow gate that leads to life. Now, let me say this. Another thing you need to listen really carefully to. I'm not talking about perfection. You don't have to be perfectly obedient to have confidence that you truly are following Jesus. None of us are perfectly obedient. We will never be perfectly obedient in this lifetime. Most of us, including me, are regularly disobedient. So it's not about perfection. Here's what it's about. It's about direction. Think about it this way. Is the direction of your life a direction where you are following Jesus, where your desire is to obey him, where you are being transformed to be like him, where you are in his word, you are seeing what he is telling you to do, and you are striving to obey him? Imperfectly, yes. Failing many times, yes. But is that the direction of your life? Maybe you can think about it this way. In 2 Corinthians, I love how Paul puts it. He says, the, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers so they can't see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So the God of the world, the devil, has blinded unbelievers. They've kind of a veil over their eyes so that when they look at Jesus, it's just nothing. No, no big deal. It's like, eh, or, or uh, nah. You know, kind of like that, right? No big deal. But believers, okay, Paul actually says that believers have had that veil lifted over their eyes. The spirit comes in and takes that veil off so that when believers see Jesus Christ, they go, oh my goodness, this is the most glorious thing I've ever seen. He's beautiful. I want him more than anything else. He is my entire desire. I'm giving my entire life to him. So so the question is, is is Jesus glorious to you? When, When you see Jesus say, that's God. I want to follow him. I want to live for him. I want to be with him forever. Now, if that's not the case for you, what do you do? Well, by now, uh, I've hit almost every, almost every message, right, in this uh, series. Where I'm going to take you? I'm going to take you to the first beatitude. So that if you're not uh, at a place where you have a passion and a desire and you don't see Jesus as the most beautiful thing in the world, what do you do? You get on your knees, you raise your hands to heaven, and you say, God, help me. Help me to see Jesus. Help me to see for who he really is. Help me to have a zeal and a passion and a desire so that the number one thing I want in my life is to live for him. 
See, it's not, again, about what we do. It's about the realization that without him, we can do nothing. And so when we're not where we should be, where we need to be, where we want to be, and maybe here's a question. Do you want to want him? Do you want to want him? Maybe you don't want him, but do you want to want him? And if you want to want him, be poor in spirit, and that will give you great evidence that you truly are a believer. Now, at the same time, let me say this. If you're not being obedient, that means that there's one of two possibilities, one of two things going on in your life. One might be that you are a wandering sheep. You might truly be a sheep, but you're wandering away. And you're not on a path of following Jesus. And if that's the case, if you are his sheep, you know what's happening right now? The Holy Spirit is speaking to you. You hear your shepherd speaking. Your shepherd calling you back. Your shepherd who will leave the 99 and go after the one. And I just have to tell you, I really believe that there are many of you here today that the shepherd is calling you through this message to come home, to come into his arms. He, he will welcome you today. And so, so, so come to him and say, all right, Lord, I've been wondering. I've been doing my own thing. I have not been living in light of what you have done for me, but I'm going to recognize how wonderful, how glorious you are, and I'm going to commit to follow you again. If that is the case for you, regardless of what your track record is, you can have great assurance that you're saved too. On the other hand, if you're like, I got no desire, I don't want to want him, you know what that means, friends? It means you're not a Christian. It, just, it does. It means that you're not a Christian. But here's the great news. You can become a Christian today. And all you have to do to become a Christian is you have to simply trust in faith in Jesus alone to believe that he is God, to believe that he came in the flesh, to believe that he died in your place for your sins, paying the punishment that you deserve, that he rose again so that through faith in him, your sins are forgiven, you are given a new life, a new heart, and that you can know that when Jesus returns or you stand before him in judgment, he's going to say, welcome in to the joy of your master. And so if that's not the case for you today, I want to invite you to do that right now. So I'm going to pray. And here's the deal. Final thing. The only way any of this is possible is because God does it. And so I'm just going to pray that in this moment, uh, and I would invite all of you believers to pray with me that God's going to do an incredible work and he's going to bring people to himself. So listen, let's not be in a rush today because um, is there anything more important than people coming to know Jesus? Right? I know we got um, lunch and plans and it's holiday season. And all, but you know, what the holiday, you know what Christmas is all about? <laughs> he shall be called Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. If you're not his people right now, become his people as I pray.